Hello, listeners, to the Interior Integration for Catholics podcast. It is good to be with you. I am Dr. Peter Malinowski, clinical psychologist, and I am bringing to you, my listeners, the best of psychology and human formation, harmonizing it with our Catholic faith. This podcast, and you are part of it right here, right now, I am really glad to be with you. This podcast is part of our broader outreach at Souls and Hearts, bringing the best of psychology grounded in a Catholic worldview to you and the rest of the world through our website, soulsandhearts.com. Check it out. We've got vibrant communities. We have courses. We have podcasts. We have blogs, shows, all kinds of resources at soulsandhearts.com. Check it out. Now, we are going to get right into it today. We are talking about trauma. Last month, in the last episode, we started a whole series on trauma. It's such an important topic. And I'm just going to open with this quote from trauma therapist and researcher Peter Levine. He said, quote, Trauma is perhaps the most avoided, ignored, belittled, denied, misunderstood, and untreated cause of human suffering. End quote. Think about that. The most avoided, ignored, belittled, denied, misunderstood, and untreated cause of human suffering. Trauma. Trauma. Now, as Catholics, we can think about this in terms of sin, right? But the two are intimately interconnected, and I am so excited that in future episodes, we're going to look at the connection between trauma and sin. But for now, we're still working on understanding in a deeper way what the best of the secular literature has to tell us. Last time, we started with an overview of the best of secular understandings of trauma. That first one in the series, number 88, we got into the definitions of trauma. We got into the definition of attachment injuries. We dived into the experience of trauma, what trauma is like. If you haven't listened to that one, it's worth going back and and checking it out. And it sets us up, that episode sets us up for today's episode, number 89. And it's called Your Trauma, Your Body, Protection versus connection. This is released on February 7th, 2022. And today we're going to get into our body's response to trauma, really focusing on what happens at the level of our nervous system, what happens in the brain, what happens in the spinal cord and in our nerves throughout our bodies. We're going to be tuning in to what happens in our own nervous system. Now, I'm going to be straight up with you on this. There's some vocabulary here to learn. I'm going to help you with that, some big words. I'm going to walk you through the concepts and make them easier to understand. In the past two decades, we have learned so much about how trauma impacts the body, the physiological effects of trauma. All right, physiological, right? What does that mean? What is physiology? Physiology is the branch of biology that deals with the normal function of living organisms and their parts. Physiology has to do with how organ systems, the individual organs, the cells, right down to the level of biomolecules, right? How all that works together, the parts within us that carry out the chemical, electrical, and physical functions within our bodies. Remember, our bodies are living systems, right? So physiology, put simply, is the study of how the human body works, And today, we're looking at how trauma impacts physiology, how trauma affects the workings of our body, especially in our nervous system. And this is really important because there's a lot of misconceptions out there. 
a lot of old ways of understanding stress. The kind of thing I learned in graduate school more than two decades ago. A lot of that's still around. Back in those days, you're either stressed or you're not stressed. You're either in fight or flight or you are in rest and digest, right? Stress on or stress off, right? Very simple ways, very dichotomous ways, black or white ways of understanding stress responses, black and white ways of understanding trauma responses. And today, we're going to do much better than that. We're going to go deeper than that. But let's just rewind a little bit and review our definition of trauma. We, we discussed this in greater detail in the last episode, episode 88. But from the Integrated Listening Systems website, I'd like this definition, quote, trauma is the response to a deeply distressing or disturbing event that overwhelms an individual's ability to cope causes feelings of helplessness, diminishes the sense of self, and the ability to feel a full range of emotions and experiences, end quote. All right, so remember, trauma is a response. And from Duros and Crowley in 2014, trauma is, quote, what happens to a person when there is either too much too soon, too much too long, or not enough for too long. And then from Stephen Porges, and we'll be talking more about uh, Dr. Porges in this episode, quote, trauma is a chronic disruption of connectedness, end quote. Trauma is a chronic disruption of connectedness. Now, most clients come to therapy for one main reason, one main overarching reason that encompasses all those specific reasons, but there's one main reason. That reason is that they are dysregulated. Okay, what does that mean? Dysregulated. It means that they are poorly regulated. It means that people coming into therapy are overwhelmed with emotions. There's difficulty controlling the thoughts. They're so distractive. Maybe there's intrusive thoughts, ruminations, racing thoughts, obsessions, disorientation, having a sense that their thoughts are no longer under control. Or maybe there's impulses coming up, rising up, intrusive memories. People are having trouble keeping it together. There's high reactivity, mood swings, maybe anger management issues, intense depression, or maybe they feel really unreal depersonalized, not myself, identity issues, they're feeling really shut down, maybe really vulnerable, and but maybe they feel like they're falling apart, maybe they can't handle what's going on, they feel too stressed out. Put simply, people come to therapy because they can't manage their lives anymore, and they feel like they're losing control. That makes them feel unsafe and scared. That's what dysregulation is. Now, I want to talk about a way of understanding this at the level of our bodies. It's really important that we not neglect the body. And there have been great discoveries in recent years about the vagus nerve, V-A-G-U-S, the vagus nerve. The vagus nerve is responsible for the regulation of many of the functions of our internal organs. Right? We're talking things like heart rate, digestion, breathing, sweating, motor functions. Uh, that's for the muscles necessary for swallowing and speech. And reflex actions like coughing, sneezing, vomiting, things like that. The vagus nerve is the 10th of the 12 cranial nerves. And some of you, if you took an anatomy class like I did, 
on old Olympus towering top, a Finn and German viewed some hops. That was the, the way we remembered the cranial nerves, right? Memorizing those cranial nerves. It's the longest nerve of the body and it's the most complex. And it's the most complex. It branches into 11 different directions. And it's part of the parasympathetic nervous system of the autonomic nervous system. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But it's responsible in general for slowing things down. All the organs from the neck down to the colon. Right, That's that parasympathetic response, slowing or shutting things down. Polyvagal therapy was developed by Stephen Porges. He has a PhD in psychology. And he's been working on this theory for the last 20 years. He writes in a very academic way, can be kind of inaccessible. So I'm also relying heavily on the work of Deb Dana. Now, Deb Dana is a licensed clinical social worker. She's a great writer, a good speaker, and she translates Stephen Porges' polyvagal theory really, really well. I'm using a lot from the introduction in the first three chapters of Deb Dana's book, Polyvagal Exercises for Safety and Connection. And then also there's a YouTube video uh, that's out there that is called Polyvagal Theory and Trauma by Deb Dana. It's almost two hours long. And that's actually worth watching if you want to know more about polyvagal theory in a way that's easy to digest. Deb Dana asks this question, what would it be like for you if your body could help you feel safe and secure and, and much more protected when you start feeling scared? She, she kind of starts with that question. And there's this fundamental discovery with polyvagal theory that our nervous system is shaped by early experience, but it's also reshaped by ongoing experience. In other words, there's a connection between our nervous system and our experience. There's this formation of connections and associations, and this reshaping changes the way that our bodies respond to stress. In other words, it's possible to break our old patterns and to deliberately fashion new patterns. This change is gradual, and it's not something that we can just will to exist. We'll talk about that later in this in this podcast episode. But if we are able to, to grip onto fleeting moments of peace and have those become more consistent helping us to have a more, a more consistent sense of well-being, more resilience in the face of challenges and perceived threats and stress, that's a really good thing. So much of this happens at a physiological level, at the body level. It's about rewiring, not thinking in a different way, not building virtue, not overcoming by the sheer force of will. This stuff is about rewiring how we operate at electrochemical level, right? It's that basic. So I want to I want to talk about the three organizing principles of polyvagal theory. The autonomic hierarchy, neuroception, and co-regulation. Okay, here's some of these big words again, right? The autonomic hierarchy, neuroception, and co-regulation. Those are the three organizing principles of polyvagal theory, according to Stephen Porges. So let's talk about the autonomic hierarchy. And let's let's back it up a little bit so that we're, we understand more about what we're talking about. We're talking about the autonomic nervous system. All right, that's primarily what we're focusing on in polyvagal theory. And the autonomic nervous system is the part of our nervous system that is responsible for the control of bodily functions not consciously directed. 
It's responsible for the things that we don't think about, that we don't run consciously. These are things like breathing, heartbeat, digestion. And that's critical, right? It's about bodily functions not consciously directed. It regulates, the autonomic nervous system regulates what we don't pay attention to in conscious awareness. And the qualities of the autonomic nervous system, according to Deb Dana, are four, right? It's the platform for our lived experience. The autonomic nervous system also serves as our internal surveillance system. It serves as a biological resource. And it also serves as the launching point for our stories about ourselves and about the world, the narratives by which we make sense of our experience. It's the launching point for that. It's not the whole story, but it's where they start. The autonomic nervous system is heavily involved in the ongoing weighing of two fundamental human needs, two major objectives that we have. First of all, we have a need to survive, and that is sort of wrapped up in the sense of protection of ourselves, right? And then the second is to bond relationally and emotionally with others. That's the connection aspect. So we've got this protection and connection. And that's the central theme of our discussion of our bodies and our traumas, the tension between protection and connection. How can we have both? How can we both feel safe and be in relationship at the same time? On the one hand, we have a drive to survive because if we don't, you know, we're dead, right? And on the other hand, we have this yearning to connect, to be in relationship with others. And as I was saying, we need both. We need to be protected and to be connected, but trauma puts those two indispensable needs, protection and connection, into tension. There can be the sense that you can't have both. You can either have self-protection or you you can have connection, but you can't have both. And if we're experiencing trauma, our autonomic nervous system automatically moves us away from seeking connection with others to a position of protection. It happens automatically. It's not a choice that we consciously make. It's not something where we invoke the faculty of the will and we make this conscious decision. It's going to happen automatically. When we're in that trauma response, we're going to move to a state of protection, seeking survival. Our nervous system closes to connections with others. It closes to change. It focuses on one primary goal, and that is to survive. Because the idea is that if we don't survive, nothing else is possible. When we're in the state of protection, it's all about one thing. That's survival. Nothing else matters. Right? So there is, the, And this is a biological thing. I think oftentimes we way overestimate the impact of our faculty of the will. There are times where our, our will is totally offline. The church recognizes this. That's why in the criteria for, for evaluating the seriousness of a sin, there's the question of how much capacity did we have to choose? Where was our will and where was our intellect? Now, when we're in a state of connection, though, we have so many more possibilities. We have possibilities for health and growth and restoration and change and connection. There's all kinds of things that happen when we're feeling safe, when we're open to connection. So, the autonomic, the autonomic nervous system and polyvagal therapy is divided into three parts. Remember that autonomic nervous system? It's the part of the nervous system responsible for control of bodily functions not consciously directed, right? And there's kind of three parts to it. You can kind of think of it as a three-pronged fork. 
The whole fork is the autonomic nervous system, but the three prongs are the dorsal vagal system, the sympathetic system, and the ventral vagal system. And so we're going to talk about those three systems, dorsal vagal system, sympathetic system, and the, and the ventral vagal system. Now, the vagal nerve is part of the parasympathetic system, so in broad terms, again, it slows us down. So let's start to review these in detail. Dorsal vagal system, what is this? Well, it's the earliest and most basic system, you might say the most primitive system within our nervous system, and it uses strategies of immobilization. Strategies of immobilization, like playing dead, like playing possum, right? Where possums will, you know, pretend to be dead. Not pretend, really. They don't have a choice. They act like they're dead. It's a very disconnected, very shut down cognitive state. It's the freeze response, right? You know, freeze. We're frozen, right? Deer in the headlights. Deb Dana uses the image of a turtle hiding in its shell to illustrate the dorsal vagal system being activated. The idea is that there's an adaptation, there's a, a better way to survive if we can disappear, if we can no longer call attention to ourselves, if we can shut down, right? That's the dorsal vagal system. The next one in the chain is the sympathetic system. This was the next to develop in the evolutionary theory that undergirds polyvagal theory. Um, it involves strategies of hypermobilization, Right, so the dorsal vagal system, that's immobilization, but now the sympathetic system, this is about hypermobilization, fight or flight. That's the classic fight or flight response. And Deb Dana uses the darting movements of a fish escaping a predator to kind of describe what that looks like, right? There's protection through action. Right, so to review real quickly, the dorsal vagal system, which we talked about first, that's immobilization, that's protection through disappearing. The sympathetic system, that's fight or flight. That's about protection through action. Fight or flight, taking action. And then the next one, the third one, the third prong of the fork in the autonomic nervous system in our metaphor there, the ventral vagal system, that's unique to mammals. You don't see this in reptiles. There's an ability to experience a felt sense of safety through connection and social engagement. Right? You don't see the lizards hanging out, you know, connecting with each other on a deep level, uh, feeling a sense of safety together. It's a very relational thing. This is the ventral vagal system. We'll talk more about it in a little bit. Neuroimaging studies have repeatedly shown us that overwhelming situations, situations in which we're flooded with intensity, with emotions, that our prefrontal cortex shuts down. Now, the prefrontal cortex, that's our higher brain. That's the part of the brain that we need for rational thought. We need it for planning, for considering different options. It engages in reason and rational thought. And when you look at the imaging studies that can reflect electrical activity in the brain, when we're flooded, that prefrontal cortex, which we really need for thinking, it shuts down. It goes dark. It goes offline. It's not accessible. It's not that we're simply choosing not to use our heads, like we're choosing not to use our brains. We're choosing not to be thoughtful. It goes dark. That's 
an autonomic nervous system response. And then what happens is that other more basic or more primitive parts of our brain, like the limbic system, they take over, right? These more primitive parts of the brain, they can't really think rationally or conceptually, right? When they're activated, when these primitive parts in the brain, like the limbic system, are activated in an overwhelming situation, they react and respond. And this feels to us to be very automatic, not considered like a reflex, that's autonomic nervous system activity kicking in. So let's take a look at what the experience of the ventral vagal state is like. Okay, It's all about connection. It's all about social engagement. There's warmth. There's positivity. There's connectedness. There's the sense of well-being. There's the ability to accurately interpret cues or signs of safety. It's very social, it's very engaged, it's very connected internally, it's very connected to other people. It's very connected internally, right? And we're in touch with our parts, we're in touch with what's going on inside of us. We're also very connected to other people and to to the world at large, right? There's an openness, there's an expansiveness, there's a sense of flexibility, and it's a place in which we are really resilient. There's a sense of hope, and we have these great capacities when we are in this ventral vagal state. For example, we're really tuned into the present moment. We're not lost in the past or ruminating about the future. We're really in the present moment. We have the capacity to filter out distractions. We can regulate ourselves, right? We're, we have this capacity to help things really be calm and peaceful within ourselves. And we can co-regulate with other people. We can help other people calm down. We can reach out to them. We can provide support. We can provide resources. We can provide a secure base where they can feel safer. And when we're in this ventral vagal state, we can engage all of our brain, including the prefrontal cortex where that higher order thinking happens so we can explore options. And we're also in touch with compassion for ourselves and others. There's creativity. There's all kinds of really beautiful things that happen when we're in that ventral vagal state. That corresponds in internal family systems to being in self. There's lots of possibilities for connection with that, lots of possibilities for for really good relating and for loving others. And the story that we tell ourselves about our lives, our life narrative, if you will, when our ventral vagal state is active, it's a good story. It's one with goodness and peace and joy and hope, lots of beauty in it. So now at this point, we're going we're gonna to step back and, and I'm going to invite you to reflect on your own experience using some questions that I'm adapting from Deb Dana for you to consider, all right? So when you are in a ventral vagal state, that's the state of warmth and positivity and connectedness, being socially engaged and interpersonally connected, what is that like for you in your body? How does that feel? feel for you when you're in that place because different people experience it and they describe it in different ways what is it like for you when you're in that really good place ventral vagal when your ventral vagal system is operative And what are some of the stressful events in your life or some of the difficult relationships that might take you out of that connected, socially engaged 
ventral vagal state and move you toward sympathetic arousal you know, to that fight or flight mode? What kinds of things go on in your life? The stressful events or the difficult relationships or other things that can destabilize you, take you out of that ventral vagal state and put you into that sympathetic fight or flight response. If it's helpful for you, you can write some of these things down. We're just reflecting on our own experience. So let's, let's discuss what happens when the ventral vagal system shuts down in the face of stress. Right? That state can be compromised by feeling deeply alone, by feeling disconnected from a loved one. It doesn't have to be a romantic breakup or divorce. It could be a conflict, right? just an argument, a heat, heat in the relationship. It can be about other people not connecting to us in various ways that we would hope to. But there's other things too, like feeling too many responsibilities in one day. So many things to do. The checklist has so much that is not crossed off yet. We've, we're getting worked up. You can start feeling the tension in, you know, rising right, as we move to that, toward that fight or flight. And relationships can really take us out of our ventral vagal state when they're distressed, when there's relational conflicts, arguments, and when there's coldness or distance or the silent treatment or other things where we no longer feel safe and secure. Those kinds of things can take us out of our ventral vagal system, our ventral vagal state, and move us to a sympathetic state move us to sympathetic activation when it becomes more about survival. You know, again, this is the fight or flight mode, very high, very high levels of energy in this state, like an adrenaline rush. The body is mobilized for actions. The klaxons are going off battle stations. There's not a lot of relationality when you are in fight or flight. The capacity for complex, flexible reasoning becomes very reduced. I mean, can you imagine playing a good game of chess when you are in fight or flight mode? Can you imagine as you're running away from a tiger that being able to think clearly about you know some, uh, some issue you're having with your accounting? No, that's not what's going to happen there. And there's no sense of safety. There's potential for panic, potential for rage, confusion, feeling overwhelmed. Could be a lot of anger being confrontational, a lot of ready to run. There's the sense of unease, you know, impending danger. Like I said, high levels of energy. Your endocrine system is now is now active. There's an adrenaline rush, epinephrine surging through your veins, right? And there can be these efforts to escape. Also, hypervigilance, right? High alert. Your pupils are dilated. Your pupils are dilated, letting in more light, looking for and listening for danger. And you can start to begin to miss signs of safety, misread them as something else, right? And there's this sense of separation and isolation. You, you may feel cut off from others, not really relationally connected anymore. And so when we're in that fight or flight state, we're in this, when we're in that space of sympathetic hyperarousal, we can't really care for other people very well. We can't connect with them very well. So we wind up disconnected from others, from, this, from the world, often very disconnected spiritually. We'll talk more about that in future episodes. And it's not a sustainable state. If we've got all that adrenaline going, if we've got all that cortisone up all the time, we can't take it. Our heart couldn't stand it, right? The narrative, 
the story that we tell ourselves when we are in sympathetic arousal is something along the lines that the world is unsafe, people are dangerous, people are unfriendly, the world is scary, falling apart. And and our, our self-message may be, I'm crazy, I'm inadequate, I can't make it happen, I'm not enough, right? And here's a quote from Mark Goulston, from Dr. Mark Goulston, who said, quote, unlike simple stress, trauma changes your view of your life and yourself. It shatters your most basic assumptions about yourself and your world. Life is good. I'm safe. People are kind. I can trust others. The future is likely to be good. Takes those and replaces them with feelings like the world is dangerous. I can't win. I can't trust other people or there's no hope. So you can see there's this shift and it happens again at this physiological level, at the, at the level at which our body is working. It's not just a mind thing. It's a body thing. It's not just a, it's not just a, an emotional thing. It happens in our bodies as well. So some questions for reflection on these sympathetic aroused states from Deb Dana. What does that mobilization feel? feel like for you? When you get revved up in that state, what is that like for you? How do you know when that's happening for you? And where does that mobilization take you? Are you more likely to go to fight mode? Are you more likely to go to flight mode? Which one? And if it's helpful to write some stuff down here as you reflect on what happens in your body when you lose that peaceful, recollected ventral vagal state and you drop into that revved up, sympathetic, aroused state, what is that like for you? Okay, so we've covered the first two states in more detail, right? That's the ventral vagal state when we're really in that peaceful place. And then we've got the sympathetic arousal. This is where we move into that fight or flight. But there is a third one. There is a third one. And that is the dorsal vagal state. So when the fight or flight state, when that mobilization does not bring us resolution, when it doesn't solve the problem, the autonomic nervous system takes the final step. It shoots the last arrow it has in its quiver. And this is the freeze response. This is the dorsal vagal response. This is happens when the situation seems so desperate that there's nothing that can be done. So there's this collapse into, quote, dorsal vagal lifelessness, end quote. The dorsal vagal system takes over, shuts us down. Everything goes offline. Almost all the brain goes offline. And everything shifts into this, con- into this conservation mode. Again, this is a response to a problem that seems inescapable, a life threat, if you will. And the properties of it are this numbing out, this disconnection, 
this dissociation, which can be experienced as spacing out, feeling disconnected from the from the feeling disconnected from the present, feeling untethered. Some people describe it as like a floaty sensation, this derealization where things around me don't seem real. It could be this fogginess or fuzziness. It could be a whole sense of collapse. You know, this happens sometimes to individuals experiencing the uh, the the unspeakable horror of rape right they they can like totally like collapse they've moved into this dorsal this dorsal ventral experience this dorsal ventral the the dorsal ventral system takes over and there's this sort of collapse right this 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 this, this like total shutting down people in this state feel a lost alone unreachable invisible There's a loss of identity, what we call depersonalization. I don't even know who I am anymore. A loss of safety, a loss of hope. Sometimes people pass out altogether, the loss of consciousness. When it's not severe, when it becomes more chronic, it can be like a lethargy, feeling really sloggy, almost like you're heavily sedated, feelings of being stuck or frozen, the sense of despondency. And this is where there's often a very strong presence and influence of shame. Shame can become really prominent in this dorsal vagal uh, shutdown phase. And we covered that in episodes 37 to 49. That's so central. So central. That stuff can get so activated when we're in this particular bodily state, this particular physiological place. People describe it as feeling dark or silent or cold. And some people can look like they're not distressed when they're in this state. They can look pretty calm, pretty chill, you know? Uh, But often behind that, what you're seeing is not someone who's really grounded and having a sense of peace and presence, but somebody who is actually being shut down uh, internally at a bodily level. You kind of get the sense of this in Paul Simon's lyrics when he talks about, I am a rock, I'm an island. Right? For a rock feels no pain and an island never cries. Right? That's, a, that's a sort of sense of this, of this dorsal vagal shutdown that we're talking about. Right? The, the abilities that we lose, we, we are no longer able to listen. We're no longer able to connect with other people. We can't share very well. We might have difficulty with words because remember, those verbal sections of our brain have shut down the prefrontal cortex. That's offline. Very little agency, uh, can't focus very well. And the narrative that we begin to tell ourselves is one of being unlovable, invisible, lost, alone, and the world is cold and empty and unhabitable. I'm almost reminded, I'm reminded of Don McLean's song, Vincent, right? About the suicide of Vincent van Gogh. And one line in there sort of captures that for me in that this world was never meant for one as beautiful as you, right? The sense of the world being so cold, so distant, so uncaring, right? So some questions from Deb Dana that I modified a little bit for you. Reflecting on your own experience, when you get into that experience of dorsal vagal shutdown, what is the experience of dorsal vagal shutdown? Is that familiar to you? Do you go to that place at all? And, and if you do, how does that sense of disconnection happen for you? What do you experience? 
in that place, in that freeze response. And if it's helpful, make a few notes. And so just a quick review, right, of the autonomic hierarchy. Remember, that's the first of the three organizing principles of polyvagal theory. There's this tension between connection and protection when we move into a trauma response, right? There's this drive to survive versus the drive to bond with others. And the question is always, where is the safety, right? The autonomic nervous system is divided into three parts. It's like that three-pronged fork. The whole fork is the autonomic nervous system. And the three prongs are the ventral vagal system, which is what's active when we're feeling really connected, really socially engaged, interpersonally bonded, right? Then there's also the sympathetic system. That's our fight-or-flight response. That's where we go into hyperarousal, right? We exit our window of tolerance to the top side, and we become revved up. Right, moving into that fight or flight response. And then the dorsal vagal system, which is our freeze response. This is where we shut down. We move into conservation mode. We numb out. We disconnect. We, we have the sense of collapse, of energy loss, you know, things getting dark, cold, a lot of shame, things like that. Those three parts make up the autonomic nervous system within polyvagal theory. That is the autonomic hierarchy. Now, one thing that happens is that it's very difficult to go from that shutdown dorsal vagal experience back to ventral vagal where you're feeling good and connected. A lot of times what people do is they ping pong between that shutdown phase, which is the dorsal vagal system being operative, to the sympathetic hyperarousal, right? So there's this really uncomfortable pinging back and forth. And again, you can see this on the neuroimaging, right, the electrical activity in the brain, because different parts of the brain are going to light up depending on which of these states that you're in. So a lot of the work of body-based therapies like internal family systems, like somatic experiencing, EMDR to some degree, a lot of the work is actually taking into account what's going on in your body. Really, really important. Okay, so the autonomic hierarchy, that's the first organizing principle in polyvagal therapy. The second is neuroception, which is what we're going to get into now. The third is co-regulation. We'll get into that in a little bit. But neuroception, first of all, what does that word even mean, neuroception, right? Well, there's a simple three-word definition, detection without awareness, we can sense things without being aware of them below the level of consciousness. Sometimes people will think of this as subliminal perception, right? Below the limit, right? Subliminal, below the limit, below the, the limit of perception, right? So when we are, when we're engaging in neuroception, which we do all the time, we sense things, but those things are below the limit of what we can consciously experience, Neuroception is the way that our autonomic nervous system listens to what's going on. This is a, a deeply subcortical experience. It goes on very deep in the brain, not in our conscious awareness, but much more in our more primitive centers of the brain. This is not engaged. We're not engaging with our, we're not engaging with our rational prefrontal cortex brain. No, this is a different level. And we react 
to different things that we're picking up long before conscious thought. So it's really important to understand that neuroception is not a conscious process, right? And by the time you actually feel the heebie-jeebies, right, and you feel that unconscious awareness, your body is already reacting to whatever it picked up through neuroception, right? So that's how we can sort of get a sense of something happening before we actually become consciously aware that there's a threat. This neuroception pays attention to what goes on inside of our body, right, with our organs. It also pays attention to what's going outside of us in our environment. It's monitoring both inside and outside. And the other thing is that it, it actually monitors what's happening in our connections and relationships with others. It actually picks up on what's going on in others, in the nervous systems of other people. So there's a huge relational aspect to this as well. Neuroception is focusing on what's happening in other people's autonomic nervous systems. And neuroception is at work all the time. It's, it's working all the time. It's picking up cues all the time that we're awake, right? So cues of safety, if in our neuroception we are picking up cues of safety, that leads to ventral vagal activation. That leads us back into that interpersonal connection, that social engagement. There's a sense of things being all right in the world, right? There's a neuroception of safety that calms, connects, and dampens the need for protection, right? If we are sensing this felt sense of being safe, then we don't have to worry so much about self-protection, right? But on the other hand, if we're seeing cues of danger, that leads us, if we are picking up through our neuroception cues of danger, that leads us right back into sympathetic arousal. That moves us right back to fight or flight. And how? what kinds of things are we picking up on? What does this neuroception focus in on? Things like facial expressions, tone of voice, head movements. Actually, you know, head movements are pretty important. Like if, if there's a nodding head, that's welcoming, right? If there's a slight tilt in the head, that's inviting, that's a welcoming sign. But if there's a straight, unmoving head, that's a cue for danger, right? That's how we're picking up on these things. These are cues are very subtle. So cues of danger, they lead us into sympathetic arousal, fight or flight. Cues of safety lead us into ventral vagal activation, and that leads us to interpersonal connection, feeling good, feeling calm, feeling recollected. There's a third set of cues, and these are the cues of life threat. These are the most serious cues. These lead us to dorsal vagal shutdown, moving toward that collapse, the, the, the state of total numbing, of total disconnection. If we are picking up cues of life threat, that's where we shut down. Right? So again, our neuroception is constantly scanning us inside and outside. What's the social temperature of the people in the room? Is it friendly and inviting? Is it hot and bothered? Is it cold and calculating? Those are different things that our neuroception can pick up according to Deb Dana's interpretation of Stephen Porges's polyvagal theory. And here's the thing. Neuroception of safety is incompatible with neuroception of danger or life threat. You can't have both going on at the same time. They're incompatible. So when we are in distress, when we are dysregulated, when we're overwhelmed, we miss cues for safety and we are much more prone to misread neutral cues 
as dangerous. That leads us to move closer to, 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 to launching into that fight or flight response, the sympathetic arousal. But here is a sign of great hope that autonomic patterns and autonomic profiles can be reshaped. We can actually rewire ourselves. Again, not by the sheer force of will, by gritting our teeth and somehow trying to overcome this by the sheer force of our will. We actually are not going to be starting with that. We're going to be starting with neuroception. We're going to start with what's happening below awareness because there are indirect ways that we can actually influence that. This is unlike a lot of therapies, which start with much higher order thinking. You know, think of like cognitive behavioral therapy, for example, looking at cognitions and whether they're rational or irrational. That's a very late in the causal chain by the time you get to conscious awareness and thinking. The order, according to polyvagal therapy, is that you first start with neuroception and inf- inferences that we're making about how we're perceiving things below the level of consciousness. Then we take those into perceptions, right? We try to make what's going on in neuroception more and more able to enter into our awareness, to be perceived. That in turn helps us to have more awareness of our states. And then we can begin to recognize and work with our emotions and that helps our behaviors. And in the end, we reshape our stories, right? So that's kind of the order, neuroception, perception, state, emotions, behavior, and story, right? Actually, when you're dealing with cognitive behavioral therapy, you're more on the end of working with behavior and story first, hoping that somehow that's going to change what happens before. I think it's easier to go upstream and deal with neuroception first. So I'm going to invite you to consider what about your story? How much of your life is about protection and how much of your life is about connection? Just invite you to think about that. How much time do you spend in a place where you're protecting yourself, either from a fight or flight response, which could be, you know, relatively low grade, but still there, or perhaps even from a dorsal vagal position of kind of shutting down, despondency, numbing out, things like that. We want to be able to edit our stories. And one hopeful thing at a, at again, at a physiological level, at a bodily level is that that can actually be done. Trauma stories are carried when we are in states of dysregulation. Our trauma stories, the way we make sense of our, of our experience when it's unresolved is all about this dysregulation of being in sympathetic arousal or being in this dorsal ventral shutdown freeze response. So quick review of neuroception, right? The definition of neuroception is detection without, a, is detection without awareness. It's when we sense below the level of conscious awareness. Neuroception happens inside my body. It happens outside of me in my environment and it happens between me and my environment. Neuroception is focused on cues of safety and if it detects those cues of safety, that helps lead us into a deeper ventral vagal activation where we're interpersonally connected and socially engaged. If 
However, neuroception is leading us to cues of danger. That leads us to sympathetic arousal, to fight or flight. And if we're in a situation where there's cues of life threat, that leads us to dorsal vagal activation, the freeze response, the freeze response and shutting down. All right, so these here's some questions for personal reflection here, again, from Deb Dana. These are about your neuroceptive cues. Now, this, this may be kind of interesting for, for a lot of people who don't actually think that their bodies communicate with them very much. Sometimes people, I think, have uh, notions that somehow that's new age or something like that. Tuning in with your body is not you know, the exclusive property of new agers, right? We can do this as, as, as faithful Catholics. Catholics, in fact, we're fearfully and wonderfully made. Our bodies are made good. We know this from Genesis, Right? We know this from St. Saint Pope John Paul II's Theology of the Body and many, many other saints. Right, We can actually explore these things in our body without fear of being, uh, without fears of, of getting off the, the straight and narrow road. So I'm going to invite you to notice, uh, I'm going to invite you to look inside and consider what is a cue of safety within your body. How do you know when your body's telling you that it's safe? What kind of cue comes from your body? What kind of body sensation fills you in there? And if it's helpful, write it down. I'll tell you what mine are uh, after we go through this list. What is a cue for danger that you pick up inside your body? What kind of body sensation indicates to you that there's danger? What happens inside your body that is like a warning sign that there's danger? What is a cue of safety for you from your environment? When you look around, what do you notice that helps you feel safe? And if it's helpful to you to stop the recording and take some time with this, feel free to do that. And what is a cue for danger in your environment? Something that happens in the environment that that indicates danger. What is a cue of safety between you and another person, something that happens in the interpersonal field where there's a sense of safety. And what is a cue for danger between you and another person in the interpersonal field between you and another person, a cue for danger? Okay, so I'll, I'll tell you what came up for me as I did this exercise, right? So a cue for safety within my body is when I feel calm and expansive, right? My sense when I'm in that space of safety within, right, that ventral vagal, that ventral vagal system activated, so I have a big open heart, like my heart is reaching out to others, 
I can actually feel that. That's a body sensation that I feel. And it's a cue of safety within my body. When I'm, ha- when I'm experiencing that, I know that I'm feeling safe. So a cue for danger from inside my body? Well, one thing that's more chronic, like if I notice that I have a jaw clench, that my, my jaw tightens up, I notice that being, um, being uh, a, a, a sign that I don't feel safe. And it's coming from inside my body. Now, other things that happen under more sort of immediate stress, like if something happens where, uh, you know, there was an incident where I got run off the road by a semi, it felt like there was ice water in my veins. Like I've had this cold chill, like in, like my blood turned to ice, right? Or ice water. That's a cue for danger from inside my body. What about a cue for safety for me from my environment? Well, I often feel safe when I'm in a quiet, warm room with sunlight and comfortable furniture and I'm drinking tea. One of the reasons I like drinking tea is that I feel safe when I'm drinking tea. I like it. You know, it just feels really good and it's a cue of safety from my environment. Well, what about a cue for danger in my environment? Dogs. Dogs. I am very suspicious of dogs. Now, this goes back to the days when I was a runner, right? And uh, and dogs would, uh, you know, would uh, sometimes chase me, right? The other thing I mentioned before, semi-trucks. Semi-trucks not holding the lane on the freeway, ah, that, that's a sign of danger for me, right? Uh, and uh, any teenage child learning to drive when I'm in the car, that's also a very dangerous sign. I think I'm going to die when my children, I'm terrible at teaching my children to drive, my dear bride, she has to she has to actually do that because I just can't feel safe when uh, any teenage child is learning to drive and I'm a passenger because I have this I, I'm convinced I'm going to die. Right? It's a joke in our family. So, um, what about a cue for safety between me and another person? Okay. Well, I'm really sensitive to smiles and 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 genuine smiles, right? Smiling that includes the whole face, including the eyes, the the Duchesne smile, right? And I'm also really sensitive to soft voices and gentle laughter. Laughter really disarms me if it's gentle and it's good-hearted. Those are cues for safety between me and another person. I can sense the warmth also in individuals' voices and their tone, right? And what's a cue for danger between me and another person? Uh, yelling. Again, I'm sensitive to tone and voices. Uh, monotones. I don't like monotones. And if there are hints of sarcasm, especially if I perceive contempt in the relationship from the other person, that doesn't feel safe to me. All right. So those are those are examples of my responses to those questions. So if that helps make it clear, you're, you're more than welcome to go back over again because it's really helpful for us to know what kind of cues we pick up in the environment. All right, so that brings us to the end of the section on neuroception. All right, that's the second of the three organizing principles in polyvagal theory, neuroception. The third is co-regulation. And Deb Dana wrote, When we feel alone in the world, we suffer. And when that feeling is chronic, medical and mental health risks multiply. She also says that, quote, our autonomic nervous system longs for connection with another system and sends signals out into the world searching for signals in return. All right. 
we are social beings, right? We, 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 we want connection with each other. And our survival is dependent on opportunities to successfully co-regulate. Co-regulation is essential for our well-being, right? This is a, the, a real emphasis from Stephen Porges. We need each other. People need people. Connection is a, bio, connection is a wired-in biological necessity, right? Um, Fisher in 2014 wrote, without the experience of an organizing other, the nervous system is stunned. And again, here we go back to that question of dysregulation. Trauma survivors suffer from a lot of dysregulation. Unpredictable shifts inside, rapid mood swings, thoughts that seem out of control, imagery that can be terrified, and then rapidly cease, right? Body sensations that are so intense they overwhelm, impulses that can seem bizarre. We covered all these symptoms of trauma in the last episode, number 88, trauma, defining and understanding the experience. You can check that out there. The central idea here, though, in this episode is that the ability to regulate oneself is built on ongoing experiences of co-regulation, co-regulation. That is another person being with me, helping me regulate. Through co-regulation, we connect with others and we experience a shared sense of safety, safety together, safety in relationship. And we need a reliable person in our lives to help us engage in what Deb Dana calls the, quote, rhythm of reciprocity, end quote, right? The rhythm of reciprocity, that's where we build shared experiences of safety in connection. We need a safe person in a safe place. And Sue Johnson said, quote, Emotional connection is crucial to healing. In fact, trauma experts overwhelmingly agree that the best predictor of the impact of any trauma is not the severity of the event, but whether we can seek and take comfort from others, end quote. And what happens when it's not there? Well, here's a quote from Lily Hope Lucario, quote, I have a gaping, painful hole in my soul where good loving parents and a normal safe childhood should have been. End quote. When we have that co-regulation, we can listen, we can engage. This goes back to long before we're even born, right? Mother and baby are sharing at an autonomic level, right? The nervous systems of mother and baby are actually connected in various ways, right? And I remember when my daughter Grace was born in 1998, there, there was an emergency C-section that was our first child. And, uh, you know, she was whisked away after, after the C-section and, you know, off to, off to, uh, you know, the, 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 the incubator, blah, 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 all of that. Not a lot of contact between, between a baby and mother. And then I, I contrast that with my son, James, who was born in 2010. His birth was a difficult birth. We, it was a home birth. Um, and, there were some complications, you know, but the midwife was all about the skin-to-skin contact right away, right? And for the first 24 hours when it was a little touch and go for us, he was in skin-to-skin contact either with Pam, my wife, or me that whole time. And I think that really helped him. That really helped him regulate. And you're seeing that more in enlightened birthing centers and in different units of hospitals where there is kangaroo care and skin-to-skin care. And this leads to positive outcomes for babies, right? You find greater stabilization in heart and heart rate, in body temperature, in breathing. There's more organized sleep. 
Why? Because babies depend on their caregivers. Babies depend on their mommies to bring their regulated nervous systems to them to connect. Now, there isn't evidence. Now, the evidence indicates that you don't need uninterrupted attunement all the time, 24-7. Really, about a third of the time, according to Oslin and colleagues in 2017 in their research, about a third of the time is what it takes for there to be sufficient developmental work done. And when we have that co-regulation, we have joy, we have playfulness, we have love, we're in the present, we have a sense of well-being. And this state of well-being is where we can offer a sense of safety to other people. It's really important for parents, for example, to have this capacity to help their children co-regulate. Well, what happens if there's a mismatch? This is a key thing, a mismatch. The inability to calm defense systems in a safe environment. Well, then we get alarm. Then we get hypervigilance. Then we get moving into that fight or flight response with that sympathetic activation, right? And if we have an inability to activate defenses in risky environments, we wind up being uh, potentially victims, right? Because Our awareness is dulled. We might engage in risk-taking. We may not realize that we are in a dangerous situation if we can't activate our defenses in risky environments. So without co-regulation, there is a lot of health challenges. It impacts us at a bodily level, much poorer health outcomes uh, in in terms of physical health. There's also a lot of distress in relationships. Why? Again, because there's a lack of safety. And then there's a lot of extra, extra suffering, a lot of misery that comes in uh, with this. So so I want to um, just briefly mention Daniel Siegel's interpersonal neurobiology here. That actually is really quite good uh, in terms of being able to improve co-regulation. He's really a specialist in how our individual nervous systems impact each other And interpersonal neurobiology, or sometimes called relational neuroscience, that's an interdisciplinary approach that was developed to describe and explain human development and functioning. It was pioneered in the 1990s by Daniel Siegel and Alan Shore. And it brings together a whole lot of scientific disciplines to demonstrate how the mind, brain, and relationships are integrated and alter one another. And that includes psychology and cognitive science and biology and psychiatry and sociology and systems theory and anthropology and even things like computer science and linguistics and mathematics and physics. They bring in modeling from those disciplines as well. So just a quick mention, uh, that's where interpersonal neurobiology would fit. I'm not sure I'm going to do much more on that, but I want to move on to an exercise now which is informed by Deb Dana. Okay, so some cautions here with this experiential exercise. I'm going to invite you to only do this if you're in a good place to do it, where it's kind of quiet, you're not driving or operating heavy machinery. Uh, We want to make sure that we're paying attention to where we are in our bodily states, not moving into fight or flight, or or not dropping into that freeze response, the dorsal vagal response where we shut down. All right, we're going to taste a little bit of it, all right, we're going to taste a little bit of it, but we don't want to be taken over by it. Does that make sense? So, so in this first part, we're going to invite you, Deb and I, to notice where you are right now on the autonomic map. All right, that's the that's that hierarchy that we were talking about. Um, and just noticing where you are in your body right now. What is up for you? 
What is happening in your body right now? There's an invitation for you to name where you are. Are you in that ventral vagal state where things are really good? Warmth, positivity, connectedness, well-being, interpersonal connection, sense of hope. You're really tuned into the present moment. You feel like you can reach out to others. Or maybe you're more in the fight or flight. Right, that sympathetic arousal. And it's possible that some may be more in that dorsal ventral response, that shutdown response. But I invite you to name which of those three seems to be most where you are. And I'm going to invite you to turn toward your experience, to really lean into it as long as it feels safe enough to do that, okay? Again, we don't want to get overwhelmed here. If it's too much, it's perfectly good to back away from it, right? We don't want to get destabilized. But if you can enter into it and turn and move toward it rather than What we habitually do with negative states is to move away from them. Makes sense. But if you can move toward that, see if that's possible. See if you have the space to do that. I'm just going to invite you, if it's possible, you know, to bring more curiosity and compassion to your experience. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. And I'm wondering, and this is really the key here, if you can listen to your own story. What story, what narrative are you telling yourself right now about safety, about connection, about danger? about protection. What's happening? For you right now. In your story. What is your story telling you about you? What is your story telling you about other people? 
What is your story telling you about the world? What is your story telling you about God? And if it's helpful, I'm just going to invite you to write down whatever you're experiencing. And now I'm and now because we have the the medium of sound I'm going to we've got an opportunity to do a a different kind of experiential exercise. I'm going to play for you a recording about 30 seconds, 35 seconds long. And I'm going to invite you to notice what happens inside your body as you listen. I'm going to play for you a recording. It won't be very long, but I'm going to invite you to notice what happens inside your body as you hear the sounds on this recording. Notice how you may move from one state to another. Okay. Just going to invite you to pay attention as you listen. And again, if this is really hard for you to listen to, again, shut it off. There's no need to have to to have to listen. It's about a baby crying. You're going to hear a baby who is in a dysregulated state, not uncommon for babies, right? Because they have difficulty with regulation all the time, but a baby crying. Here's the, here's the clip. Okay, so I'm going to invite you now to notice what was happening inside. What did you move to? Did you move to a more ventral vagal state, a warm connected state wanting to really reach out to that baby? Or did something happen where you went into more fight or flight? Or maybe even a shutting down or freeze response. What cues were happening as you heard that baby? What messages were there? What happened to your story in the moment, the narrative? Really paying attention to what happened inside and how might that be related to your history, you know, your own infancy, 
or if you're a, a mother or a father, you know, how, how you raised your kids. Again, if that's too much, let it go. We don't have to go there. If it's helpful to stop the recording and to really reflect on your experience, do some more work around this, that's great. Feel free. Take what's helpful from this. And then I've got one more clip for you. And this clip is of a toddler laughing. Right? And I'm going to invite you again to notice what happens inside your body as you move from you know, the last recording to this recording. Right? So we'll play the clip. What did you notice happening as you listened to that toddler laugh? Was it more ventral vagal, the warm connected state? Was there a sympathetic arousal around that, a fight or flight response? Or maybe a shutting down or freezing response to the dorsal ventral? What kind of cues were going on there? The meaning, the messages. What did you notice happening in your narrative, the way you make sense of your experience in the moment, the story you're telling yourself? How might all this be related to your history too? I know that when I was listening to the baby crying, I moved to sympathetic arousal. I felt a sense of, of helplessness, that there was nothing I could do to stop the baby. There are parts of me that did not know, you know, weren't really aware that it was just a recording, it wasn't happening. There are parts of us that don't make that connection, right? So that was really hard for me to listen to that baby. And I listened to a lot of different clips of babies crying when I was putting this together to find one that I wanted to use. And it was very hard for me. I don't like it when babies cry. I noticed that it brings up feelings of inadequacy and things like that for me. And with a toddler laughing, I just felt much more peace. Like things were more right in the world. You know, that laughter, I could sort of visualize that child. Like things are all right. Almost picking up cues that that toddler, in a sense, was telling me that all was right in the world, at least in his world in that moment. So, Well, uh, just a couple of takeaway messages here, bringing in more of a Catholic anthropology. You know, our Lord tells us in Matthew 7, 1, judge not that ye not be judged. Okay, and I think we can assume by looking at the outside of people that we know what's happening on the inside. And so much of people's culpability really depends on where they are physiologically, where they are with their bodies. Because remember, we're embodied beings. We are soul and body composites. Our bodies have tremendous influence on how we think and how we act. And so there's a lot of ways that we can be compromised. So just, 
just an emphasis on here uh, and an encouragement not to just judge other people because we don't really know what they're capable of in the moment. It's not our job to judge their souls. We can and should judge behavior sometimes, evaluate those behaviors, but not their souls, right? In 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, it's written, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So we need to give some people some space, some latitude with this. So much of our internal experience is outside of the influence of our immediate will. We have a fantasy, an illusion, very much in the United States, that we can overcome anything with willpower by direct power. You are not, by just sheer willpower, going to light up your prefrontal cortex if you are in a dorsal ventral shutdown situation. It's not going to work that way. And we can't do it all by ourselves. That's what the science is telling us in this. And it's entirely consistent with what our faith tells us in that we need other people that we need to be able to be in relationship, right? So I want to thank you for being here with me. This episode was bringing to you the impact of trauma on the body through the lens of polyvagal theory. In the next episode, we're going to get into more common treatment modalities, right? We'll talk about EMDR. We'll talk about other ways of treating trauma. It's really important that we get to how do we overcome trauma? What's the best of the science? What is the best of secular psychology have to say about that? How do we heal, right? We'll also get into internal family systems approaches to trauma. I don't know if that'll be in the next section in the next episode or in the one after that, but we will. We'll get into an internal family systems approach to trauma. And then once we have all that groundwork on trauma together, we'll begin to address the spiritual dimensions of trauma. This is a really neglected area, but it's so important. How does trauma impact the spiritual life? And what's the relationship between the spiritual life and trauma and how we overcome it? Now, if you're a listener to this podcast, and if you're hearing this, you definitely are, you are welcome to get in touch with me You can call me on my cell phone, 317-567-9594, 317-567-9594, any Tuesday or Thursday from 4.30 p.m. to 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Those are my regular conversation hours. I put that time aside for you, right? You can also email me at crisisatsoulsandhearts.com. I am a little behind in my correspondence right now, um, and so I will get to you as soon as I can. I'm also going to encourage those of you that are really interested in these approaches to know that we do this kind of work in the resilient Catholics community. We actually work with these things within our bodies in terms of our human formation. There we have a 44-week, it's a year-long course, over, you know, there's 44 sessions over the course of a year. We'll be opening up the community again in June of 2022, later this, later this year. You can get on the waiting list if you want to get updates and so forth about that. That's at soulsandhearts.com backslash RCC. That's our landing page. Also, I'm just going to encourage you to check out soulsandhearts.com. That's our uh, that's our website. That's our home on the internet for all kinds of resources out there that ground the best of psychology and human formation in a Catholic understanding of the human person. Again, those resources, there is a video on YouTube called Polyvagal Theory and Trauma. Polyvagal is P-O-L-Y-V-A-G-A-L. Polyvagal Theory and Trauma by Deb Dana, D-A-N-A. It's nearly two hours long, goes into more depth than I did here. Uh, And I look forward to being with you as we continue our series on trauma. I look forward to hearing from you. I also do 
a weekly email to all of our Souls and Hearts subscribers. If you're not getting that, uh, go ahead and subscribe at soulsandhearts.com. There's a place where you can register for weekly emails from me. So with that, we'll invoke our patroness and our patron, Our Lady, Our Mother, Untire of Knots. Pray for us. St. John the Baptist, pray for us. Thank you.